This story was originally distributed here on January 22nd as episode number seven entitled This Angel. Since we have many more listeners now than we had then, I thought I needed to do a rerun. For you who have not heard this story, it will be worth your while. For those that have already heard it, it will be worth your while to listen again. There are real life lessons included here. Lessons that will stop you in your tracks. You will learn a little about a difficult and troubling past. There's much needed humor included intentionally. There's a beautiful story of how to handle the storms of life that we all go through. You will hear how a lady who seemingly had so little impacted those who seemingly had so much. And there's a mental picture of how it all turns out in the end. The greatest among you will be your servant. This is the story of Jesse May King. Viewing life from a hearse, it could be worse. Laugh, think, and cry with the country undertaker. As were most southern towns in the early 60s, Reynolds, Georgia was very segregated. Not only did the blacks and whites go to different schools and different churches, but they also went to different restrooms. I vividly remember seeing signs on restroom doors when I was a kid, plainly stating, whites only. A local restaurant, which was a typical southern family restaurant, changed its name to a private dining club when the desegregation laws came into existence. When a customer got to the front door, the owner would look to see who you were, and he would hit a buzzer that would unlock the door to let you in. There were two waiting rooms at the local hospital. The front room was for the whites. The blacks had to come through the alley to a back waiting room. The main wing of the hospital was for white patients. The back wing was for the black patients. This is not to insinuate the blacks got less care. They got the same care as the whites, but in different parts of the building. The blacks lived in two different sections of town called Bottoms. The section across the railroad tracks was called the Big Bottom. On the south side of town, there was a settlement called Goddard's Bottom. My great-grandfather owned that land at one time. Many of the white families had maids. It was not unusual to see a white housewife driving through town with her maid sitting in the back seat by herself on her way to work. The maids cooked, washed, cleaned, and kept the kids. When the family sat down to eat a meal, the maid would eat by herself after the family had finished, and many times they would drink out of a mason jar instead of using the regular glasses. Many of the younger folks will have a hard time hearing all that, but trust me, it is the truth. We did not create this culture, but we lived in it. Now you need to understand, as awful as that may seem, and it was, there was at least from my perspective an upside for the black community. Many of these ladies were uneducated and untrained and had no way of making a living except for working 
as domestic workers in these homes. The black men who did not have a job or a regular job would work in the white folks' yards. They would usually be fed on a picnic table outside, and they would drink out of mason jars too. One black man who was a major part of my life was a man by the name of Hanson Law. He did have a job. Born in 1900, he worked for four generations of my family, including for me, for over 60 years. He was a major part of the family business. He worked daily in our general store. He worked in the funeral home. He dug graves and even dug wells. Everybody in town knew him. One Saturday night in the early 60s, an obviously intoxicated white man came in the store and walked up to the meat market counter. Hanson was trying to wait on him, and the man was not being nice. Unbeknownst to Hanson and the intoxicated customer, Daddy, who was much of a man in those days, was watching and listening from a distance. The man was cursing and giving Hanson a hard time about the meat he was wanting to purchase. Daddy took a step toward the meat market, but was being patient and hoping the man would just get the meat and leave. But the drunk man got louder and more boisterous and began to curse Hansard, and all of a sudden he called him the N-word. Daddy then walked over and grabbed the man by his shirt collar and literally dragged him to the front door and pushed him out of the door and saying, don't ever step your foot back in this store again. Daddy never told me that story, by the way, until it came up years later and I brought it up. Hanson, on the other hand, told me that story many times, even when I was a kid, and even after I became an adult. He told me he would never forget Mr. Ed standing up for him that day. The man, by the way, never shopped in our store again. Neither did his family. They also made it a practice to go out of town when they needed the services of a funeral home. That was passed down to new generations. I have no doubt that most of the family did not even know why they didn't do business with us. But because of Hanson's story, I knew. Many years later, not long before Daddy died, and when his memory was not quite as sharp as it had been, Daddy noticed a local man died, and we did not handle the funeral. I remember him asking me why we didn't get that call. By the way, that's a question many funeral homeowners ask from time to time in the privacy of their home. I told him, Daddy, that is the family of the man you threw out of the store years ago and told him never to come back. Daddy looked at me, and I could tell he remembered. His response, son, all business is not good business. I was thinking defending the defenseless is more important than making money. Many years before, it was Hanson who mentioned to my daddy about his wife's cousin who had moved to town from South Georgia and desperately needed work. He said she would be the perfect person to help around the house and help with the goddess' new baby that had just been born. It was 1942. Her name was Jessie May King. Of all the contributions Hanson made to our family and business, the introduction of Jesse May King would turn out to be his greatest. Just like Hanson in the family business, Jesse would become part of our family 
for the next 60 years. Her job was to babysit. The family grew, by the way. There were four children eventually. Keep house and cook. And Lord have mercy, could she cook. And she was very grateful to have a paying job. She cooked the best fried chicken and whole cake cornbread I have ever eaten, and her beef stew would cause a fight at the table. It did not go unnoticed to us children that Jessie lived in a little shack in Goddard's Bottom. Her husband died at a young age, and Jessie was left to raise four children alone. They had no running water, and their bathroom was an outhouse located in the yard. Their only heat came from the wood they burned in their stove. The house consisted of two rooms. One room is where they all slept, and the other room was a little kitchen. There were no monthly welfare checks in those days. Their only income was whatever Jesse earned working in a house. The clothes they wore were hand-me-down clothes that we gave them or clothes we bought them. Most of their meals came from the leftovers at our house. But Mama made sure there would always be leftovers. The interesting thing is that her children all became very productive members of society. Her oldest son had a career in the military. The two girls moved to California and became very successful. Her youngest son, Billy, married and stayed in Reynolds to look after his mom. Daddy was determined to help get Jesse and Billy out of that shack. In the early 70s, his determination paid off. Jesse and Billy and his family moved into a brand-new three-bedroom house built right in front of the old shack, complete with running water, restrooms, and central heat and air. They could look at that old shack every day and remember, if anyone ever deserved a new house, it was Jesse May King. Jesse was always a very important part of our family. She had full authority to discipline us and all the other kids who were in and out of our house, and she did. She would break a branch off of a tree in the backyard and make a switch, and she would wear us out with it when we disobeyed her. Our house was like Grand Central Station in Reynolds. All our friends knew Jessie, and she knew all my parents' friends and our friends by name. Jessie could also be very funny. All our friends have Jesse stories to this day. They could all relate to this story as I was telling it to a live audience a few years ago. Y'all got to understand a town the size of Reynolds, it's not like we kept a secretary at the funeral home from 9 to 5 every day. I mean, we didn't go over there or somebody died. That could be two or three months sometimes in Reynolds. <laughs> but we had one black rotary dial telephone in the hall of our house. Y'all remember we just had one phone kept in the hall? I mean, we got, if all the cell phones in here went off right now, we think we had a fire alarm, right? Let me tell you, I got to tell you, I was traveling north of Atlanta. It's been several months ago now. I don't know, it was about 9 o'clock in the morning. I had to go to the restroom. And I pulled off the interstate. I saw this brand-new convenience store. And the truth is, I was in a hurry to go to the restroom. And I went in this convenience store, and I was about in a gallop, but I, I ran in, and I, I went to the men's room. And I remember there were three stalls. I wasn't thinking... Should have been, but it wasn't. I, I ran in there. I went up to the first stall. And I just ripped the door open, and there was a man in that stall. I said, Lord, have mercy. I am so sorry. And he looked at me funny and all that stuff. But I was going to skip a stall and go to the third stall. That, that's a man thing, ladies. I don't know whether y'all know about that. But anyway, I got to the third stall. It was dirty, so I had to go back to the second stall. By the time I got in the second stall, the man over the first stall said, how you doing? 
And I'm thinking, I don't know who that is, but you know, I don't embarrass him to death, so I definitely want to be nice. I was like, I'm doing fine. <laughs> a few seconds went by, went by and he said, what time do you leave this morning? I'm thinking, you know, I don't know who am I talking to up in this public restroom three hours from home, but again, I want to be nice. I left about 6.30 by the time that guy said, let me call you back. Every time I ask you something, some idiot over here in the next stall is trying to answer it. I had to put my feet up in the stall to that man left. There's no way I was going to meet him at the sink after all that. I can tell you that. that there wasn't no way we were going to do that. Well, we had one black rotary dial telephone in the hall of our house. And we had one black rotary dial telephone on the desk at the funeral home that was a block away. We didn't have cell phones or call for it or anything else. We were in bondage to the telephone. I mean, think about it. Being in the funeral business, the telephone was our livelihood. I was trained as a kid. When the phone rang in the hall of our house, I had to rush to it and had to answer it Goddard Funeral Home. That was at home. If I said hello, I'd get slapped, and that's true. The biggest <laughs> fight I ever got in with my brother was who's going to stay home when everybody else went to town. I mean, somebody could pass away. Somebody had to be there to answer the phone. I remember when I was a kid, I'd be at home, sitting in the hall, talking on that black rotary dial telephone. Mom and Daddy walked by, slapped me on the back, said, Bruce, get off the phone. Somebody may be dead. Lord, have mercy. <laughs> Every time I get on the phone, I'm thinking, you know, somebody may be dead somewhere. You know, I don't need to be on this telephone. But we used to get in all kinds of predicaments about getting somebody to answer the phone. And especially when, you know, my, my brother and I were too little to answer it. Our older brother and sister had gone to college, and, and uh, daddy and mama had a friend. Her name was Miss Jessie. And Miss Jessie was an elderly lady, but she was good about coming over to the house and answering the phone so mom and daddy could get out of the house every now and then. And I'll never forget this night. Mom and daddy were going to go next door to eat supper with Dr. Watley and Rosemary. Dr. Watley was a town doctor, one of two doctors in town, but they lived next door to mom and daddy. And, Daddy asked Miss Jessie to come over to answer the phone, and he asked if she would to sit in the hall so she could hear the phone. Sometimes she couldn't hear good. And said, here's a pad and here's a pencil. If somebody calls, you write down the name of who called and the phone number, and you just walk next door to Dr. Watley's house and get me. He didn't trust the dial, the number, and all that. And he explained to her that somebody could pass away. It's very important for her to answer the phone. Sure enough, that night, they'd gone to eat. I heard the phone ring. I was too young to talk on it, I guess. And I knew she talked to somebody. I knew she didn't write anything down. But, but Miss Jessie went, went next door, and she said, Ed, somebody's dead. And, and Daddy said, well, Jessie, did you get the name of who it was? She said, well, tell you the truth, they were upset. <laughs> she said, well, Jessie, did, did you get the phone number of who called? She said, Ed, tell you the truth, when they got upset, I got upset. <laughs> said, Jessie, you mean tell me that somebody's passed away, and, and the family's called our funeral home to come get the body, and you didn't get the name or the phone number of who it is? She said, well, Mr. Ed, you and Dr. Watley sitting right here. Don't y'all know somebody around here has been low sick? <laughs> that travel all over trying to figure out who it was and pass on. Now, now I'm, I'm telling you that. I told you that so I can tell you this. How many of y'all remember when your parents used to tell you when you were going out of town somewhere that they wanted you to call home, collect, and ask for yourself <laughs> so they could be sure you got wherever you're going? So y'all remember that? I never understood that. You know, go ahead and spend the 10 cents and talk to your children. You know? but, 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 but my mama did that. And I, I had a brother that went, went to the University of Minnesota. He was 12 years older than me. He still is 12 years old. I mean, everything changed. But, but, but he, he came home about twice a year. And uh, I went with Mom and Daddy to Atlanta one Sunday afternoon to take him back to the airport for him to go back to Minnesota. And I remember the last words Mama told him when he got on that plane to, uh, to go back to Minnesota. She said, Mac, when you get to Minnesota, the first thing you do when you get there 
is you call home, collect, and ask for yourself so I can be sure you got that safe. Y'all with me, right? She want to be sure a boy's all right, but she want to save a little money, right? Y'all with me. But the, but the first problem was he got to Minnesota before we got home from Atlanta from the airport. That was problem number one. Problem number two was, was Miss Jessie was answering the phone that night. Y'all know how the operator used to do, so I have a collect call from Matt Goddard. Will you accept the charges? She said, well, he ain't here. And Matt realized that was Miss Jessie on the phone. I said, operator, I'll call back later. She said, operator, that sounded like him there. When I first started dating my future wife, Kathy, in 1971, Jessie was still around. She did not work as much, but she was still in and out of mom and daddy's house. We always loved it when she cooked for us and our friends. She loved to cook, and we loved to eat. When Jessie was frying chicken, I would usually walk over and clean her glasses for her. I don't know how she could see with all the white lily on her lenses. One of my sayings to this day when my glasses get dirty is, I need to clean my glasses. They look like I've been frying chicken. My mother basically had two sets of children. My oldest brother, Mac, was born in 1942. My sister, Kiki, was born in 1945. They waited a few years and started up again. My brother George was born in 1952. I came along in 1954. Jesse was around for both sets. By the time all of us had left home, Jesse retired and went to her new home to relax. She would still come to the parents' house when we were all at home, but her daily domestic work was done. But I moved back home after college and got married. In late 1979, Kathy and I had our first child. We were trying to figure out who to call to babysit one night, and I suggested Jesse. Jesse was 70-something years old, and Kathy was convinced she was too old to babysit a young baby. Kathy knew her, but she didn't know her like I knew her. Kathy finally relented, and Jesse came over to keep David that night. That would turn out to be the greatest suggestion I ever made to my wife. Although the now elderly Jessie would never cook a meal at our house for us or our children, she began to hang out with us. She loved to come over to babysit at night if we were going somewhere, and we loved her coming over. She also came to our house about two days a week when the kids were home, whether we needed a babysitter or not. Sometimes she folded clothes to have something to do. Most of the time, she sat around, and we all listened to her stories. When our boys were very young and we were out, she would put them to bed at night, including saying prayers with them. They considered her another grandma, and she considered them her grandchildren. When the kids got sick, Jessie would be right there tending to them and making sure they got better. During those times, she wore white, and she called herself a nurse, she had healing hands, she would say. We believe that. Our boys believe that. They will tell you that to this day. I always believed Jessie had a direct line to God. She had a childlike faith, and I kind of think God smiled on that. If any of us had a real need, we would always get Jessie to pray. I never saw Jessie get angry, not in my entire life. I never heard her say an unkind word about anyone. She was the most patient person I have ever known. The truth is, she was the hands and feet of Jesus to us. 
and the closest thing to him I have ever known. Jessie will never receive accolades from this world for what she accomplished in life. She did not have a place on a wall where she hung her diplomas or certificates of achievement. She never had any money in the bank and never even drove an automobile. The truth is she spent most of her life on earth serving our family. I have a strong feeling our family will spend an eternity in heaven serving her. Our kids eventually grew up, and we moved about 40 miles away. I was the last Goddard in a town where the Goddard family moved in over 150 years earlier. It was not easy leaving. It was more difficult leaving Jessie. When she was 96 years old, I drove over to Reynolds and picked her up and took her to our house to spend Christmas Eve. I can tell you this, she did not eat leftovers that night, and she did not eat after we got through eating, and she certainly did not drink out of a mason jar. We brought out the fine china, and she sat at the head of the table. After the meal, we all sat at her feet and listened to her wisdom. She never had much education, but she had as much wisdom as anyone I ever knew, and a heart as pure gold. I was reminded of the words of Jesus in Matthew that night, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. When Jessie was 99 years old, I visited her on the July the 4th holiday. She never ceased to amaze me. I especially remember that day having to bend way down to hug her and to kiss her on the cheek. She was less than five feet tall. I'm about 6'5". I walked in the door and she started grinning and said, There's my Brucie. I recorded her for a few seconds that day. I ain't never forget y'all neither, Brucie. I think about y'all. I just still can't get there. Yeah. And I've been thinking about y'all all the time. I'll never get y'all from my mind. I think about y'all. You and Kathy and the two boys. Keep it all in. Yeah. I showed you my Brucie. I'm glad to see you, Brucey. Mm. So glad to see you. The ball show we'll sit up with you. Yeah. You're so good. Yes, you are. God bless you, Brucey. Mm-hmm. Brucey, I've been doing pretty good. I've been up stirring and getting around, going to church and finding it. Mm-hmm. You go find it. Yeah. I got to stay with a good local. I wish I had recorded much more. As I was driving back home that day with tears in my eyes, the memories were flowing. I was thinking about her fried chicken. Jesse always said, Brucie likes fried chicken. George, my older brother, likes pork chops. I was also thinking about all the hours she spent with all of us, got her chillin', as she would say. I remember how she never got in a big hurry about anything and how I needed to slow down. I also remember her talking about how good the Lord was to her. I was thinking that day that most people would have spent much more time being bitter about how hard they had it in life and their plight in life. Jessie never wasted a second in her life being bitter. I was also thinking about my siblings. We are a close-knit group. We all have gone in many different directions and squeezed every drop out of the orange of life. 
Hopefully, we've impacted a few people in a positive way along the way. We owe a lot to our parents who spent their lives investing their lives in their children. But make no mistake about it, we also owe a lot to Jesse May King. We all have carried a piece of her with us wherever we have gone. A large piece. In March of 2007, we all traveled to Reynolds to attend Jesse's 100th birthday celebration. It was our honor to be there to honor her. Her children and grandchildren planned this event, and some traveled as far as California to be there. In the world's eyes, Jessie probably didn't make much of an impact. In her family's eyes and in our eyes, she made a monumental impact. A couple of months later, I was traveling, and I got a call from my youngest son, Luke, about midnight. He told me Jessie was in the hospital and was very sick and probably had a stroke and was not able to talk. She was brought to the hospital by ambulance because they could not wake her up. I got home the next day and went straight to the hospital. When I walked in the room, I was totally surprised when she looked up and called my name, Brucie. Whatever had happened to her, she had improved and was about to be dismissed from the hospital to go back home. I couldn't believe it. Her daughter-in-law, Jeanette, was with her in the room. Jesse lived with her son, Billy, and his wife, Jeanette, in Reynolds. Billy Boo, as Jesse called him, had been ill for several years, and Jeanette not only looked after her husband, but she looked after her mother-in-law. When I walked in the hospital room that day, Jeanette was wearing gloves and had just finished changing Jesse's diaper. Jeanette had gone home only one time in the past five days. She spent every single night in a chair by her mother-in-law's side. She waited on her hand and foot and she was waiting on her hand and foot before she was admitted to the hospital. I was reminded that day of the biblical account of Ruth and Naomi. Naomi refused to leave her mother-in-law's side. Although most people could not understand Naomi's faithfulness to Ruth, God blessed her faithfulness in an incredible way. When someone has a mother-in-law like Ruth or Jesse May King, you can better understand their daughter-in-law's faithfulness. And God's provision. When we look back, we all have different memories of our beloved Jessie. One memory that we always mention is what she demanded of us when we were kids when the storms came. It took me a long time to understand the lesson God was teaching us through her. But a few years ago, the light turned on for me. I recorded this in 2018. My daddy always told me if she didn't make it to heaven, nobody else stood a chance. He also said if there's a front row in heaven, she'd be on it. She died on October 27, 2007. Since my parents preceded her in death, I envisioned that day that they escorted her down to the front row with loud applause from all the angels. Jesse May King, began working for my mom and dad in 1942. My siblings and I spent an awful lot of time with her as we grew up. And years later, my children spent an awful lot of time with her. Our lives have taken us in many different directions, but we have never forgotten this incredible lady. Lord have mercy she could cook. It just never got any better than sitting at a table with Jesse's fried chicken, rice and gravy, butter beans, fresh peas, whole cake cornbread, and sweet tea. Still today, when I eat a piece of fried chicken, I compare it to Jesse's, and none compares to it. 
We never had to worry about who our babysitter would be if Daddy and Mama were going somewhere. It would always be Jesse. Those nights sitting at home with Jesse when our parents were gone were some of the fondest memories I have in life. We talked about everything under the sun, and I learned more than I could ever imagine I was learning. I had to get older before I began to understand the wisdom of this lady. She never had much knowledge, and she surely didn't have much education. But there's a huge difference between knowledge and wisdom. I know a lot of smart, educated, and seemingly successful people who are foolish. I also know a lot of seemingly successful people who look down on people who are not as educated and those who don't have much material. My lifelong relationship with Jesse McKean taught me the insanity of such thinking. Trust me, it doesn't matter how much money or things we have in this life. We cannot take one dime with us when we leave here. You hang around a funeral home most of your life and you figure out the importance of material things. I will always remember Jesse's childlike faith. We try to figure things out, and if we can qualify it and quantify it, we believe. Jesse just believed. I'll never forget one afternoon when one of our boys was very sick. My wife and I were young parents, and we were beginning to get nervous. We just couldn't get the high fever to break, and we were just about to take him to the emergency room. I looked in the bedroom and saw Jesse kneeling beside his bed. She didn't use an extravagant prayer or flowery words. I stood at the door and watched and listened. Her prayer was simple. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. She repeated about 10 times very quietly. In a few minutes, she walked out of the room and I walked to the bed and put my hand on David's head and immediately felt the sweat. The fever had broken. She just believed and her childlike faith had a lot to do with all of us believing. One of the things that we all remember was being with Jesse during a violent storm. When lightning was cutting crazy zigzags into the black sky, and when the rolling thunder, late with its warning, seemed to crack the air as if the heavens might split apart, Jesse's response was always the same. She would gather us all together in one room, she would make sure televisions and most lights were turned off. Be very still and quiet, she would say, in very low but confident voice. The Lord is talking. Let the Lord finish what he has to say. It's interesting that even now, when I find myself in a storm like that, I think about Jesse, and I feel like I would be better off being still and quiet until the storm passes. But even more interesting, after all these years, the incredible truth of what she was teaching just hit me recently. We all have storms in our lives, not having to do with the weather, but having to do with circumstances so difficult that we think the heavens might split apart. Our natural tendency is to do everything in our power to manipulate the storm so we can reduce its impact. Instead of being quiet, we do just the opposite. We get very active in our frantic attempt to influence the outcome. I can only smile when I think of how crazy our thinking can be. We cannot lessen the storms of life no more than we can do it when the weather gets bad. We're just not that powerful. 
a frantic activity does not change the storm one iota. It only makes it more stressful and dangerous for us and steals our peace. Jesse's lesson is a powerful one. When we are facing the violent storms of life, we should get still and be quiet. And remember, the Lord is talking, so we should listen very carefully. One thing is for certain, the storm will soon pass, just like they all do. There'll be plenty of time afterwards to pick up the pieces and move on. Today, as I record this, March the 17th, 2018, if Jessie was still living, today she would be celebrating her 111th birthday. Happy birthday, Jessie. And thank you for all you taught me and can continue to teach me, even years after you're gone. You have no idea how important you were to me and my family. On October 27, 2007, Kathy and I were in a hotel in Cabo San Lucas, Mexico. Kathy had joined me on a company trip. That morning, about 3 a.m. Cabo, Mexico time, my Blackberry started vibrating. I have a strong feeling that heaven started vibrating about 30 minutes earlier when Jesse May King, Post Office Box 1, Reynolds, Georgia, made her grand appearance. I'm not sure how they do it in heaven, but I am quite positive a huge celebration began there that morning. I can picture the heavenly choir gathered and the trumpet sounding louder than maybe they have ever sounded. Maybe the door swung open and the huge throng of saints from ages past stood on their feet with loud applause as Jesse May King was escorted down the aisle. If my mom and dad were not escorting her, I am positive they were very close by. Jesse May King was escorted down to the front row. I know that because my daddy always told me that Jesse may not have had a lot of riches on earth, but she would be on the front row in heaven. If I heard that one time, I heard it a thousand times. So I know she has to be on the front row. And if they hand out rewards in heaven, she was having a difficult time counting them that day. In other words, she would have received a truckload. For many, many years, Jessie wore hand-me-down clothes. Today, she's clothed with the finest clothing ever made. For many years, she and her family lived in a one-room shack. Today, she is walking around an indescribable mansion that was prepared for her before the beginning of time. God had a plan for Jessie the day she was born, and he never wavered bringing that plan to fruition Nothing about her life was a mistake or a surprise to him. For most of her life, she was a servant. She cooked and cleaned house and helped raise other folks' children. I was one of those children, and so were my children. The Jesus she talked about in almost every sentence that came out of her mouth looked at her in the eye and said these words that she had been longing to hear. Well done, thy good and faithful servant. I think of her every single time I hear the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. The greatest of these will be your servant, he said. I am reminded that the evidence of real love is humility. For the record, next to my parents, 
Jessie May King impacted my life more than any person I ever knew. She led a very simple life, but one of the most profound I have ever known. She was simply an angel, and I have no idea where I would be if not for this angel. That night, Kathy and I were invited to a private dinner at one of the most elegant restaurants in Cabo. There were 10 of us gathered around this beautiful table that night, all leaders of this huge company. As we were getting ready to eat, I told a little bit of the story of Jessie Mae King and that I had gotten word early that morning that she had passed away. To be honest, I wasn't sure if the others wanted to hear that story or even cared, but I was compelled to tell it. About 30 minutes later, after we had ordered our food, my boss, a native New Yorker, and one of the senior leaders of our company proposed a toast to Jesse May King, and he delivered it in a manner that only could come from him. You could have heard a pin drop at that beautiful table and that elegant setting. Kathy and I looked at each other with tears in our eyes. To think that this lady who seemingly had so little, who raised her own kids in a one-room shack with no water or electricity, was impacting people who seemingly had so much at one of the most elegant places in the world, called chills to run up my spine. A week or so later, we celebrated Jesse's life in a little country church on the outskirts of Reynolds, Georgia. To be honest, I had dreaded that day all my life. Earlier that week, I'd read a Thomas Lynch quote. He said, a good funeral gets the dead to where they need to go and the living to where they need to be. This one did that. All my family gathered there that day were forced to take a hard look at the things that are really important in life. I have no memories in life apart from this incredible lady. She was a major part of my life. I was reminded again that greatness is not about how much money one has in the bank or how many diplomas one has on the wall or the social position one reaches in life, but greatness is measured by the degree in which we serve our fellow man. Jesse May King was a humble servant who impacted far more people than she ever knew, but none were impacted more than me and my family. Viewing life from a hearse, it could be worse. Laugh, think, and cry with the country undertaker.